listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my lovely and beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Margaret Grabowitz to talk about her new book, Mounds and Desire. But before I start, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is currently open, but we are following the current mask mandate. So please, please, please bring your masks when you come visit us. But yeah, come on by. Our website is also uh, available right now for online ordering at www.skylightbooks.com. And yeah, you can still order books and come on by and pick them up. Margaret Grebowitz is the author of Whale Song, The National Park to Come, and Why Internet Porn Matters, and co-author of Beyond the Cyber Cyborg, Adventures with Donna Haraway. She has been published in venues like The Atlantic, Slate, and The Philo- Philosophical Salon. She has also translated a number of poems from her native language, Polish. She has worked as a professional jazz vocalist in New York City and a philosophy professor at a number of universities. She is currently a professor at the University of Silesia in Poland. She currently lives in upstate New York. Hi, Margaret. I'm sorry. Did I think I messed up that pronunciation? No, that was perfect. Perfect, Lance. Perfect. Absolutely spot on. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I was so, as you know, before I was so nervous. And yet, and yet it was brilliant. So well done. Thank you so much, Margaret. How are you doing today? I am, uh, I'm hanging in there. Hanging Hanging in there. That's the best we can ask for, right? Um, You have a reading for us today. I'm so excited to hear. I do. Um, yeah, uh, there are there are quite a, quite a few places in this book where I think one can sort of open and start reading, kind of mm-hmm. in in the middle of things. Um, mm-hmm. And so I found one of those. This is in my uh, chapter called "Gestures of Climbing." It's actually mm-hmm. chapter six of this book, um, and I'm going to start sort of right in the middle of the chapter. Sounds good. Take it away. Okay. These days, there's one kind of climbing on which everyone seems able to agree. It's not climbing for its own sake, much less for the sake of the Everest selfie. The perfect convergence of climbing and environmentalism is in the campaigns to carry trash down from Everest. The challenge of picking up the trash on Everest has received much media attention lately, as such campaigns continue, the latest causing some controversy. The UNESCO text points out, each individual's commitment, such as leaving no lasting traces behind, as one of the basic tenets tenets of alpinism. But the lasting traces that really threaten Everest are not in the form of litter. 
the litter narrative gives the mistaken impression that the more people climb every year, the more trash collects on the mountain. But most of the trash carried down today is from expeditions of previous generations and just now being released by the melting ice. Although there are more of them, today's expeditions leave behind much less litter than those of the 1970s and the 1980s. As tour operator Lucas Furtenbach likes to half joke, climbers today are bringing down Reinhold Messner's garbage. Death Zone, which is a documentary from 2018, documents the first time in history that humans have gone to the death zone in order to clean it of the over 150 bodies and 100,000 pounds of garbage generated over time by over 4,000 climbers since 1953, which was the first summit. But the film quickly turns from the problem of litter to that of climate change. Frustratingly for filmmakers, the reality of waste management on Everest takes place on levels we don't see, like wastewater management at base camp and the ban on single-use plastics that Nepal instituted in 2019. This is where steadily growing numbers of climbers, in fact, translate into an ongoing waste crisis in the region, even as climbers responsibly carry out their own trash. The most important question leading the film is a climate question, not a litter one. And this is a quote from the film. Look at this river. How many people will be drinking this water? And in the end, narrator Patrick Stewart, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, warns that the whole world may become a death zone if humans do not change their ways and do something about climate change. And yet religious and cultural issues work their way into the film as well as the documentary manages to combine three levels of crisis into one, litter, climate change, and the loss of Tibetan culture, all coincide in this imaginary, just as they do around the climbing closings uh, in uh, like in Uluru, for example, in Australia. The expedition leader, Namgyal Sherpa says, Everest is a goddess and offers this throughout the film as his explanation for the cleanup, all of which is ultimately explained as a Buddhist religious act of transforming negative into positive substance. Why then is the focus of this and so much other media on litter? The act of carrying down the litter accomplishes something that none of these other sustainability narratives do. It maintains the need for skilled, old school climbers, the kind with personal investments in the region and the ecosystem, the kind that UNESCO would like. It bridges the gap between a more traditional approach to climbing and Sherpa climbers and even Tibetan spiritual practices. Everest here becomes a place where all of these can be simultaneously prioritized by climbers who can thus continue to climb in the name of sustainability. As long as we do not fall prey to ironmongering, which here becomes code for unsustainable climbing, whether from cultural or environmental perspectives, then we are all united against an enemy. But who are today's, today's ironmongers, the ones exploiting the mountain for their own gain, the vain ones, the ones in it for the wrong reasons, 
the ones that the true sustainable climbing must reject or outrun? The answer to this is becoming harder and harder to determine. It's easy to point the finger at the wealthy financiers, except that they're the ones who can actually afford the most low footprint expedition companies. Now, surely Sherpas are not the ironmongers, unless we take seriously that they are making their living off commercial climbing. And so their interest in the mountains can hardly be considered pure. So then the purest climbers must be the free soloists, the ones who literally use no iron, quote unquote, but they are the ones who bring in film crews, right? Think of free solo. They bring in film crews, drones, and eventually celebrity. So in the era of climbing bands, it's clear that a certain vision of climbing aligns perfectly with the very same environmental goals that animate much public support of those bands. Once, the differences that mattered to the public were differences among climbing styles. This is what was once meant by different climbing cultures. Now, narratives, moral frameworks, and identities, or positions within those frameworks, matter more. This contrast promises to become even more heightened in the era of COVID-19, in which local and even global lockdowns, border crossings and other constraints are always on the, sorry, border closings and other constraints are always on the horizon. The conversation about sustainable tourism is now changing into one about regenerative tourism with calls to consider nature, human health, and community identities in the course of creating a new vitality of tourism, ostensibly leaving the travel destinations improved for future generations. We have come to the end of a fantasy of climbing as an overcoming of the human condition and a transcending of time and place. Instead, we are coming to see climbing as invariably inflected by the human by geography, history, and geopolitics, a tectonic shift in self-understanding and worldview. The frameworks we have inherited for evaluating the moral standing of climbing with debates built around universalizing questions like to climb or not to climb, these failed to speak to the complexity and acceleration that characterizes the global late capitalist situation. The latter is slowly but surely forcing a shift to particularizing questions with more provisional answers, answers that require justification and are subject to revision as the world continues to change. Who gets to climb? Where? Under what conditions? With what goals and toward what consequences? So, that was, what a great reading. That was fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, so I just have, I just, there's so much I want to talk about with this. I mean, your book, um, your book just, the way that you talk about climbing, it just like, it's like both there's the research part of it, but also like your history, there's like a lot of history with it too for you, it seems. Can you talk a little bit about your history of climbing? Well, I'm not a climber. I, mm -hmm. like you, Lance, I'm not a climber. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's something I've always been fascinated by. 
And so I wanted to write a book as, as a kind of armchair climber, right? As a kind of spectator mm -hmm. of this sport, um, because I know that there are other people like me mm -hmm. um, who, who sort of follow this and are fascinated and are interested and intrigued. Um, mm -hmm. And for whom it's a very unique activity for that human beings do. Uh, mm. So there are, I think, a lot of us out there and climbing writing doesn't always, um, doesn't always really answer the questions that we have, right? So mm. there's a genre called climbing writing. There's also mm. a genre called philosophy of mountaineering. And, yeah. and this book doesn't, doesn't really fall into either of those. Mm -hmm. um, it's something else. It's, it's written by and for <laughs> a kind of person that is just kind of watching this from afar Mm -hmm. and trying to understand what it all means in our present situation, right? In our present right. condition, whatever, however you want to name that condition, whether you want to call it late capitalism or the Anthropocene or the climate mm -hmm. crisis or, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of the, the breakdown of the nation state. I mean, all of, all of these things, right? There needs to be like, there needs to be like one time. word to like describe all of those situations, I <laughs> yeah. feel like. Well, there are words, but there, I don't think I can say them on the radio. <laughs> Listen, I give you full, I give you the full <laughs> go ahead to say whatever you want. They'll, they'll have to hear it. Um, no, it's, I mean, yeah, it's so, I feel like it's a very interesting to, thing to watch right now. My, I mean, if I had to pick from anything that I think would, is the most important for climbing right now is the climate change, I think because it's making a lot of places that people would go climb and mountains kind of uninhabitable. Can you talk about like the, the state of that, like the state of just the climate change affecting um, the uh, people who do climb or like what it will look like for them? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends on what you mean by people who climb, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got, we've got that sort of the, um, we have the professional sort of elite athletes mm -hmm. who climb. Then we have people who are um, not professional climbers, but who are sort of, uh, what should we call it? paying clients, right? So mm -hmm. they pay to, um, to, to have these expedition companies right. uh, take them up in the high peaks, right? Mm -hmm. So in the, in the Himalaya. Um, and then we have uh, the, the porters, who are also climbing the the mm -hmm. Sherpa porters who are also climbing uh, they are um, paid to uh, to assist with climbs mm -hmm. to to carry equipment um, to facilitate various things they they have m multiple roles they they mm -hmm. they prepare the mountain for the climbers in various ways they mm -hmm. uh, you know they um, plant uh, Plants, not the word. I'm losing the word. Um, they they put they put ropes in um, mm. so that people can pull themselves up, and uh, they they make it sort of a a, a safer um, situation for the paying clients. Mm. So you've got all these different sort of categories of people who climb. It's not just right. <laughs> it's not just the climber. There's sort of almost no such thing anymore, mm. right? You have to really be um, specific about the category you're talking about. And climate will, the, or what we're calling glacial melting in the Himalayas, mm. will affect all those groups in different ways, right? right. So um, certainly the Sherpa communities will be affected most dramatically because when we are talking about glacial melting, we're talking about uh, potentials for massive floods downstream of all of that. 
causing, you know, natural disasters, massive mm-hmm. displacements to communities, mm-hmm. um, which will, you know, it's predicted that those will cause, you know, further economic uh, crises in mm-hmm. in these in these places, right? Um, so, uh, in how that will then sort of affect the commercial climbing industry uh, mm-hmm. is is complicated. You know, we have to remember that Sherpa climbers are making, I don't even know what the number is anymore. It cha- every time I see a documentary, it's a different number. You know, they're making wow. um, many, many times the amount of money that a sort of average uh, Tibetan or Nepalese mm-hmm. uh, citizen can make, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about, you know, um, an industry that's 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 very lucrative mm-hmm. um, from their perspective, right? So wow. um, how it will be affected is really hard to say. Yeah, <laughs> the, but there will be, there There just will be an effect. There will be like- There will be an effect and it will be very dramatic because everything that happens there is very dramatic. Right, I mean, it is a very dramatic <laughs> feel of field. Yeah, it's, yeah, there is a lot of uh, drama in this and that's, goes into my the next thing I want to talk about which is like when you were like researching this book did you see anything in the psychological like the psycho the psychology of doing these climbs because it feels like there's a lot of what's the word is it death junkies is that what they're called like the people who are chasing like adrenaline junkies adrenaline junkies that's it I mean because to do that is like high adrenaline like you're it seems like an addictive quality to it too well that's what that is certainly the reputation that climbers have mm-hmm. um and one thing I'm, I'm trying to kind of be clear about in the book is that there are there's the world of climbing itself which i don't have that much insight into because i'm mm-hmm. not in it right? right what i have insight into uh and 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 a, a sense of is how climbers are represented and how climbing is represented in the mainstream mm-hmm. media Mm-hmm. And absolutely in the mainstream media, we seem, we as an audience uh, mm-hmm. seem quite hungry for these stories mm-hmm. of this, of these like uber driven, addicted mm-hmm. people, right? right? We're sort of, we're really in love with this kind of narrative mm-hmm. of the climber that just has to go back, right. uh, even though they've lost their best friend, right? Mm-hmm. In the mountains or they've lost their leg or, you know, something horrible right. has happened to them, but they just, you know, it's, a, it's, and there's, I think a lot going on there. There are a lot of sort of, you know, um, I think about, I, I write about climbing as a, as a projection space for various other fantasies about mm-hmm. what it means to be human. Right. So um, yeah, there's a kind of, you know, kind of, American uh, late capitalist fantasy of overcoming all adversity and going mm-hmm. back and it's kind of individualistic and um, you know never give up just do it mm-hmm. uh, that that kind of thinking um, th- there are also I think you know very personal uh, reasons why people uh, continue to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that have to do with spiritual practices that have mm-hmm. to do with 
mindfulness and right. um, just having a practice at mm -hmm. all and disconnecting from a lot of the rest of the world because, mm -hmm. you know, there are reasons to, to disconnect. <laughs> Great. No, um, I mean... as, as life becomes more and more unlivable um, right. under, under pseudo normal conditions, right. When mm -hmm. they're not, when they're less and less normal anyway. Right. So, um, so I think it's, I, I think it's hard, you know, one, one message I want uh, people to take away from my book is that there's no one answer to this. Mm -hmm. That there are all these sort of different levels of answer to this, right? Because I, I go, I went into watching this with that same question, like, what's up with these people? <laughs> yeah. What's up with them? What are they doing? Why are they, why are they so obsessed with this, right? Are they actually mm -hmm. this obsessed with this? You know, one thing we hear about very rarely is like climbers who do quit. I'm sure yeah. there are plenty of climbers who quit, but guess what? They're not the ones getting the book deals, <laughs> which mean, is interesting, right? Yeah. Which is interesting because that I think would might be an interesting book, like why I quit climbing by somebody famous. <laughs> right. But you know, it, it tends to be sort of not, not really the thing that people are hungry for. Right. And, and that's what I want us to examine. The people that like the audience, the audience who are watching this. That is what I want us to examine is what is it that we want from these narratives exactly? Mm -hmm. Right. What are we after? Well, it seems like there's a lot of it's like it might be the the adrenaline junkie. It's like our lives are the people who are not climbing feel such normalcy in everyday life that they're this is how we get adrenaline is from watching these people do these fantastic feats or the like the the what's the word the Vicarious. stereotyped yeah well oh, I was thinking oh no. of the stereotyped in the climber of the death junkie kind of stereotype right. for them right we're trying to get that for uh for ourselves um yeah I mean you know one thing to to really ask ourselves uh one of the things I'm I'm writing about in this book is the movie Free Solo Mm -hmm. and and why it had such enormous success right it won the oscar mm -hmm. for best documentary feature and mm -hmm. you know in terms of filmmaking with all due respect <laughs> with all due respect it's really hard for me to imagine that it's a better documentary in terms of filmmaking than mm -hmm. who than whatever else was you know nominated that year yeah i'm i'm sure there was some exquisite documentary filmmaking on the table um, but that free solo one really has less to do with the level of documentary, mm -hmm. um, and, and more with this exquisite, completely unique feat, mm -hmm. right. For the first time in history, um, for the first time in human history, something like this, this has been done, right. Right. Alex Honnold, free solos, El Cap. And which which is as he says the center of the rock climbing universe right for all right. all of our so he does this thing that no one would have thought was humanly possible mm -hmm. um and it's captured on on camera right um and so there's a strange experience as we're watching it because we know that he survived right i mean mm -hmm. we know this because we've seen the preview <laughs> right so we know he makes it so it's not like a knuckle biter mm -hmm. and yet Right. And yet, as we're watching it, there's there's all kinds of there are all kinds of sort of, I think, engagements with the possibility of death. Right. Um, 
first of all, we're reminded all the time about all the people who have died mm -hmm. rock climbing, all of his friends who are also free solo climbers who mm -hmm. have died, um, who will continue to die, right? Because this is not, you know, you're not going to sort of beat this sport, right? It will always be as dangerous as it is. It's just a matter right. of who, who gets away with it and who doesn't. Well, it seems like it's also a matter of time, like event, like an eventuality of like, oh, especially I feel like the draw of free solo, as I remember it, I don't think I, <laughs> I couldn't watch it because I was like, no, 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 this is not a film for me to watch because I, no, 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 no. Um, but the thing that I remember was people were like, oh, it's not that he dies in it, it's that he's going to die doing this one day. It's going, this is going to be, and he's choosing it though. He's choosing it knowing that it's an eventuality and he's making this, I feel like it's the investigation of making that choice, right? To like go and yeah. maybe die. I mean, yes and no. You know, if you, if you listen to, if you listen to uh, interviews with climbers, you know, mm -hmm none of them are interested in dying, right, <laughs> you know, right. none of them are, none of them are for them. It's just, it's, it's, they're good at this thing that mm -hmm. they do and it's, right. it's, it's risky, but you know, so is driving your car. Right. When in, in that, I mean like more of the audience being like, he's going to like, there's that audience thinking that, Oh, he's event he's doing this and he knows he's eventually going to die. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that that's audience projection. Mm -hmm. then right Truth. I don't think I mean you know what I mean it's really yeah. once you're dealing with figures like Honold in that movie you're dealing mm -hmm. with a kind of sort of uh I don't know how to say it you're dealing with like a, a character mm -hmm. at the edge of the human imagination right Right. I mean, I know it's a documentary and I know that Alex Honnold is a real person, yeah. <laughs> but it almost it does. It doesn't seem to matter. No, it doesn't matter to us because we're looking at we as the audience are sort of we're confronted here by mm. a kind of, you know, and the ultimate like faceless human being standing above before the abyss. Right. That is really we're to, we're talking about like the pure human, whoever that is, like this universal mm. human figure confronted by the abyss and this this is really how that film positions the audience right vis-a-vis -vis right. Honold rather than Honold as a as just a dude mm -hmm. and you know and this and this feat as just one event in the in mm -hmm. you know the the large-scale history of climbing which is which is absolutely how he sees himself he, he sees right. himself as just a dude and this is just a thing there will be mm -hmm. other things <laughs> and other people are good at other things so right. But but that's but you know the reason it has such impact is because it um, puts us in relation with this kind of uni universalizable experience of the abyss, right? Right. Um, and and so yeah, so I think it's a it's a very unique film to be watching at this time for yeah. all of us to be watching at this time. Well, it feels like also that thrill people get, the audience, from the audience perspective, that thrill they get from like watching a war movie where they're like seeing someone also kind of staring. Like, you know, those those war movies where it's like people who are always go back. They always have to go back and they always right. have to like keep going. <laughs> that same kind of like people being like, oh, I, 
I have to, I want to watch this person staring into that abyss, staring into that like face of immediate danger and possible death. And like, there's the movies, you know, like the, the, the biopics where like, you know, who makes it out at the end because it's a true story, but you, they still go to watch it because they want to see them get as close to this danger as possible. Right. And it's, it seems very similar to that. And it seems like there might be some overlap in audience uh, or oh, overlap in probably. Like, yeah. And it seems like, right. The thing that's getting popular with it too, is this kind of Instagram influencer kind of engagement with trying to do that too. And you talk about that in your book too, right? Right. And um, yeah, because, you know, to me, to me, the kind of that that hunger that you're describing mm-hmm. for um, for those limit experiences, right? Mm-hmm. For 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 the abyss, that hunger is somehow related to the fact that we're getting less and less of that in our actual lives, mm-hmm. right? So, right, we look for it vicariously because we're we are not. There's, there, there's some kind of um, disconnection or dis, mm-hmm. distance from our own sort of experiences of authenticity and risk, mm-hmm. right? That, so, so that that's so we're so we're after it somewhere. Mm-hmm. We want it from something else. I think. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's like, yeah, and I mean with because i've seen this too and i think it's a tiktok trend too right now which i don't understand that world we're like people are going out there and i think that during the pandemic when people were like oh we have to there was like this push to go outside to like we can't stay inside uh but we can't also be around others so the only thing we could do is be solitary out in nature so there was this like and maybe it was also from the trend of like what free solo brought out people doing these extreme things to post online which feels it, it, it feels both similar to what Free Solo was as a documentary, but also different because there's like, these are just people looking for some internet clout to like, be like, oh, I can do that same thing too. How does, how does that like transfer to like audience engagement? Uh, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's exactly my question, mm-hmm. right? That's exactly my question and what, you know, um, one of the things that I'm interested in in the book is how publicity affects climbing, mm-hmm. but also, you know, the the forms of publicity keep changing. Mm-hmm. The modes, the genres, the the media right. of publicity keep changing. So, um yeah what's what about that everest selfie right yeah. what about everest as a presence on instagram or everest as a presence on tiktok mm-hmm. or yosemite as a presence on tiktok these are fascinating mm-hmm. questions to me because well, i think you... i think they are actually very different things mm-hmm. than you know major motion pictures right right mm-hmm. um uh and and they and they have much sort of in a way they have much greater reach <laughs> much greater mm. power, right, than major motion right. picture. And 
it also feels like uh, are they becoming their own kind of category of climbers themselves, like an influencer climber? I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised at all. I think that's a that's a fantastic way of putting it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think of it that way, but I think now um, that's exactly that would be the volume two, Lance. <laughs> volume two, influencer climber. You know, well, it's, it's interesting. Let me just yeah, let me just um, add one more sure. thing. You asked that question at the beginning about climate change and how it's going to affect mm -hmm. um, uh, climbers, and one of the um, at the moment, probably the most successful like pro climber um, mm -hmm. is this guy named Nirmal, Nirmal, Nirmal Purja. They call him Nims Purja. And he has, um, uh, he be uh, the set by uh, Jerzy Kukuczka, who is one of my countrymen, a Pole. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, who, set, who set the record for climbing, uh, summiting all of the highest peaks in the world. Mm -hmm. um, the time record, right? So Nims Purja came in and beat that record. I think that I think Kukuchka held the record for something like I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look, but it was a long time. It was many decades, right? Wow. So yeah. sudden, so no time record, and mm -hmm. suddenly here comes Nims Purja and basically and uh, does it in. I think Kukuchka's record was something like doing it over eight years or something, wow. and Nims yeah. Purja does it in something like six months. God, wow. That's the difference that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, and when Purja reported about this, when he sort of said, okay, I've done it, um, mm -hmm. he also reported uh, about climate change. He said, look, mm -hmm. the reason that it was possible to do something like this is because conditions have changed so dramatically. Right. And that's because of um, uh, Himalayan melting. Mm -hmm. Uh, he is also the one who took the photo of um, the, um, the, the, he took a, a, a photo that went viral of people sort of waiting in line mm -hmm. to start their way up to the Everest summit. And that photo went viral. So someone like Purja is a great example of, he's a, prof he's a professional elite climber, but he, ha mm -hmm. he ha very much has a very sort of strong presence on Instagram. Right. Also, so he's also, he's not not an influencer, mm -hmm. even though no one would dare say about him he's just an influencer. <laughs> I mean, he's one of the top climbers in the world. Right. It, so, so these are all going to be like weirdly overlapping yeah. categories. Well, it seems like there's a, I mean, he's earned that kind of you know, higher level of like the influencer where he's he's earned it. It's like a a politician on, I don't know, I can't fuck through that. It's like a, a scientist on uh, making a Instagram account or for TikTok. their, or TikTok, a scientist making a yeah. TikTok versus like uh, someone who's into science making a TikTok about it because there's a sort of, uh, higher level of understanding of the of the thing, right. where maybe it's to be like the amateur influence, the amateur climber on TikTok or Instagram doing it, where like a part of it I feel like is also that same free solo danger where you're like this is a person who definitely doesn't know how to climb or is not like or is because they're doing it only for clout and not because they're professional at it, there is a more immediate sense of danger there. And, but that's what makes it interesting for people to watch now. Right. 
Yeah, maybe it would have changed. Maybe if this was like a thing before Free Solo, it, I mean, it probably was, but like as, if Free Solo didn't push it as far as it did, it would have been like a different, you know, it would it would be different. The landscape of it would be different, but. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the landscape of it keeps changing. Uh, the New York Times mm -hmm. just published an article a few days ago where uh, about a man who's sort of the record keeper for, mm -hmm. uh, for the highest peaks. Mm -hmm. for uh, the summits of the highest peaks. And he's, you know, basically claiming that mm, basically no one has actually summited <laughs> like successfully, um, yeah. that there are very few actual successful summits because people are confused about where the summit actually is, mm -hmm. or they, they don't, they don't misreport in the sense of lying, but right. that there are all these reports that are not quite getting it right. So mm -hmm. that all of these summits that so many of these summits that over the decades have been clocked, are actually not the case wow i mean so this keeps changing right yeah. and what i what i really love about that article in the new york times is they say um oh of course this is going to completely change the history of climbing or will it <laughs> right and i liked that i like that we're we're suddenly suddenly sort of getting enough dis we as an audience are getting enough distance from this mm -hmm to understand that it really is a media question, right? That it's really a question about media and publicity and news and reporting and record keeping, right? Mm -hmm. And measurement uh, um, and surveying and all of these right. things. That's really what's going on here. And that we mm -hmm. have to take into account the complexity of this situation. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, the average reader, the average viewer is coming to see that. Right. And yeah. that's really great. That's really great. I mean, from like studying the, you know, the audience, how the audience sees climbing, it seems like that's a positive thing that you're really seeing from there. Was Absolutely. there any other positive things that you saw from this like research, like anything that you were like, oh, wow, this is something that people are actually like, that's enhancing, you know, uh, the human experience in some way, which feels like such a broad thing to say. But yeah, like, you know, something that like made you feel, oh wow, this is actually furthering uh, the human conditioning. The human condition, <laughs> human conditioning. Wow, um, but furthering the human condition. Yeah. Um, I mean, in in general, I would say. This is a bit of a strange answer, but I think mm -hmm. the fact that my book was published at all <laughs> yeah. is a sign that people are open to having the conversation mm -hmm. um, about climbing with someone other than a climber. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I mean, that, that, mm -hmm. that, that people are understanding the, like I said, that people under, are understanding this as a, as, a, as a phenomenon of the media. Mm -hmm. And they want to talk about it on that level. They want to read about it and think about it on that level. Mm -hmm. They don't just want to read climbing stories. Right. That, that tells me something. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that the book has, you know, that, that, that it was published, that it's actually um, had considerable success mm -hmm. um, is, is to me a sign that um, audiences uh, that there is an audience for this conversation, right? That audiences really want to reflect on what's being fed to them, mm -hmm. if you will, right? Yeah. 
and and what they're projecting on mm -hmm. various kinds of uh, you know spheres of human activity. They want to right. they want to understand themselves, and mm -hmm. that to me is much more interesting than any kind of traditional philosophy of mountaineering. Yeah, I, I hope you're hearing the big scare quotes around that. <laughs> it's really right. philosophy of mountaineering is really I think. Uh, sort of a bit of a travesty. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think I, I, it's, it's very outdated and it tends to make sort of universal claims about the human condition, which as I read to you in that piece, I don't think that's appropriate anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's appropriate to project onto climbing anymore. Mm -hmm. And that what we can get out of climbing instead is a, a massive amount of insight into the all of us can get mm -hmm. a massive amount of insight into um, our situations, plural, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, but but not by sort of imagining a universal human condition of man on mountain sticking his mm -hmm. flag in the mountain, right? Mm -hmm. um, but instead, this very complex, fascinating phenomenon of people risking themselves in these ways us ask you know us non-climbers asking why do you do that mm -hmm. them having various answers to that us mm -hmm. projecting various of a mere you know a, us projecting myriad things onto yeah. onto these answers and then and then coming to see these as projections and examining our own projections right mm -hmm. examining ourselves as desiring creatures in relationship to this practice wow. that's what i think is the big um, gift that climbing can give us today. And that, I mean, wow, that, <laughs> what an answer. That is, I feel like that should be like, you. Sh that should be somehow <laughs> said or something like that. Like a recording of that should play before someone opens the book. Cause it's so, that's what grabbed me there. It's like, yeah, it seems very like hopeful there's hope there was hope in that like and that's kind of you know I feel missing in a lot of uh talks about like anything to do with nature right now it's like very like negative and very the future of it is uncertain and probably not going to be sustainable but what you said kind of just felt so contradictory that to that that I like wow it made me want to think maybe I will climb I won't ever to the listeners I won't ever no there's nothing that'll make me climb come I on have, Lance uh, the the one climbing story I have is so hilarious I don't know if I can say it I'll, I'll say it I went climbing in or I went like hiking kind of and it was like up on the red rocks in uh Colorado I went up there and I don't know I'm I, I'm not a hiker I don't do it I don't ever will never do it again but I was like all right I one thing I have to do was bring water I know that as a fact I bring a can of LaCroix up there and a can of LaCroix I want you to know guys Margaret is covering her face <laughs> she is <laughs> in distress no it was hilarious because people were visibly pointing and laughing at me <laughs> as they were coming down because they see me with this little can and I'm just like, this is all the water I need. I, I don't know how to do any of it, guys. I don't know. I once, I like when I was climbing up, my mom called me, and I was like, yeah, I can't talk right now. I'm going. I'm hiking. She was, starts laughing. She starts just laughing to the point where my a friend that I was with heard it over the phone and was like, what is that? I'm like, my mom laughing at me about this, La and like put the our entire family on the phone for it. So 
No, that will never be a possibility. But that statement you just said is the closest <laughs> I have to maybe considering it. That's great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I actually really do want people to get outside more, right? Yeah. No, but, that's, yeah. But not in just like, not in, not in, but I also want them to, to allow themselves to have a lot of contradictory feelings about it. And a right. lot of, you know, um, uh, in, internally inconsistent <laughs> thoughts mm -hmm. about it, because I think it is an inconsistent sphere of, yeah. of experiences and emotions. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I mean, and I say this as someone who, you know, lives in the country and is outside a lot and is a wilderness mm -hmm. enthusiast. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think people absolutely need to go out there. But mm. the more that they go out there and get out there, the more they're, um, they should sort of allow themselves to have a lot of different uh, modes yeah. with it, in it. And I think yeah. that'll help, that'll help, um, you know, understand and appreciate, you know, what we have and maybe keep it, if I feel like enough people like that have that mentality, there'll be more of a push to keep it sustainable and to kind of, try <laughs> to reverse you know some of the some of the problems that are happening right now in nature but like you know it's it's people having to make that choice to uh, go out and understand it which hopefully instead of other people deciding to spend billions to go up into space for no reason but i that's just that's a hypothetical that's not something that really happened yeah. um, <laughs> So I sadly we have to wrap up, but before we go, I have one last thing to ask you. For you, is there anything that would get for you, get you to go out there and climb a mountain in this way? Was is there anything that like maybe you discovered in this point? They were like maybe <laughs> this would be the thing that would get me to go out there and try this uh, dangerous, you know, dangerous and like very arduous thing. Um, that's a good question. That's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm like everyone else, you know, in this respect, like when you see what climbers do, mm -hmm. when you see how dedicated they are to, um, to the sport, uh, to their training, mm -hmm. to the environments, that mm -hmm. you know that they work in um that they climb in mm -hmm. it's it's really moving mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so all of this research made me think like wow that's really extraordinary mm -hmm. what these people are doing and i would really like to do something like that i'd like mm -hmm. to see what's happening you know i'd like to go and right. see mm -hmm. um but in that respect i think i'm exactly like everyone else right mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's it's just, it's extraordinarily impressive. Mm -hmm. It is extraordinarily impressive. And no amount of critique um, really takes that away. You yeah. know, it's, we can make fun of Everest selfies all day long. And I do. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I'm the queen of making fun of Everest selfies, but, <laughs> but, but no, no amount of that um, mm. really, really sort of takes away from uh, what it, what it means to have a dedicated to, to have a practice that's dedicated to something like that. And like, I mean, one, wow. And that's so true. Like, yeah, you can, it's like one of those things where it's like, 
there there will obviously be critiques on it. There obvious obviously be a person who says, "Oh, this is uh, I don't know uh, what's the word I'm looking for commercialization of right. this amazing thing, or you are taking this beautiful space and kind of." Uh, doing a crude thing to it by putting it online and making it blah, blah, blah. But that, it's meaningless. You can't take, you, you, you're saying that, but you're not taking away that experience from that person. It's, they did that, they made this feat. They deserve in some, spe- in some ways to like take that Everest selfie. They deserve it. And like, and we just, I, I will also make fun of them because it is, it is a ridiculous thing to, like, it's that ridiculous thing of like, you climbed it, why do you want to take a selfie? But like, Hey, they climbed it. They should have to. They should deserve to take that selfie. And no, that's. I mean, what a great way to end it. Yeah, like. I I just I feel kind of again moved to maybe one day think about maybe one day doing it. Um, I'm holding you to this, Lance. I want to know about it when it happens. That I maybe thought about it, and I will let you know (laughs) when I maybe think about it. No, this is this has been such a great talk. No, I had a fun time. This has been, I mean, I'm I'm gonna go outside today. I'm gonna go outside. I'm gonna do it. I'm well, Lance, it. you live in LA. There are all those beautiful mountains all around. You That's know? true. And, I and mountains are mountains. I mean, mm-hmm. no way around it. They are ancient, yeah. and they are um, they're pretty special special mm-hmm. places. So when I when I lived in Colorado, I have sit in one of the. Um, one of the 14ers, 14ers, is that what they call it? The the big ones, yeah. And 14,000 feet. 14,000 feet, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, And I went up there and it was right on the continental divide that I was at this house and it was so beautiful. And I was just, and that's, I think that moment where I was like, wow, this is, this is real. <laughs> this is a real thing. This is not something I just, cause this was the first time I lived in a state with mountains like that. And I was like, this is an actual, like, this is an actual thing that I'm seeing. This is not something on TV. This is not a picture I'm seeing. I'm up here looking at these high peaks and it just like, I don't know, that was something that like changed my perspective on something. Even a little bit it did, but like it did. I felt I felt different afterwards. I felt like I had a higher appreciation for the world I'm living in. So yeah. yeah. And the more we learn about the history of the land, right? The more mm-hmm. we learn about the history of public land and the indigenous people that lived in these places, um, mm-hmm. wh- whether they were went up into the mountains or not, or what they would have used mountaintops for, mm-hmm. you, we keep learning about things about the land that change mm-hmm. our experience when we do that, right? When yeah. we go and then we're like, wow, okay, well, this is what happened up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is for, you know who used this. This is the people for whom this was ancestral land. We just keep. I I just think I just think it's an endless, um, kind of fount, <laughs> fount, <Yeah>. fountain, font, <laughs> fountain. Yeah. Uh, it's an endless source, right? Mm-hmm. Of of um, of connect of 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 a of a way of connecting to life and mm-hmm. the earth and you know even the local place where you are. So, yeah. yes. No, you're right. I'll and see you in the mountains, Lance. You'll, we'll, we'll meet there. That's where we'll meet. Um, and to the listeners, like, I don't, wherever you are, and I feel like there's nowhere to escape this. Like, wherever you are, there's a way to just see nature and to really go out and respect the world there. So my challenge to the listeners, this is the 
Skylight book, Skylight challenge, hashtag Skylight challenge. Go outside and just like, I don't know, appreciate nature in some way today. Like go look at a tree and see why. Just ask why <laughs> to this tree. Um, no, just like go see something that like no one else in the world other than where you are can see this and appreciate that. And I feel like that, I feel like in doing so, you will really embody the spirit of your book, Margaret. So thank you for all the people today who are, all the people today who are appreciating the world outside a little bit more. Thank you to, thank you to you for, from them. That made sense. <laughs> that made sense. Thank you is what I want to say. Um, and yeah, we have to wrap up, but to all the listeners out there, you can buy Margaret's book, Mountains and Desire, uh, right now, currently, right now, it's at Skylight Books. It's right in our front podcast display. You will see it out there. If you don't, go ask a bookseller who's there to go find it for you. But yeah, go buy this book and go really- It's my huge pleasure. <laughs> Sorry. It's, no, it's, it's I'm, I'm, no, this is exciting. Go buy this book. Go appreciate like what these people are doing. Even just, even if it, even if you think you won't, check it out. Why not? Right? Why not? You might. And no, this is, this is an exciting piece of work. I'm very, I'm very glad to know about it in this way. Um, before we go, Margaret, I want to know if you have anything you would like to say to the independent bookstore community. Very much. I wanted to thank you, Lance, and thank Skylight Books. And um, thank you. And to thank, to thank the independent bookstore community because, um, because you guys bought my book and, and, and that's not nothing. Um, actually I've received, uh, mail from people I never would have met. Um, and when I ask, you know, Hey, how did you, uh, how did you hear of my book? How did it, mm -hmm. how did you come upon my book? And they say, Oh, it was at my local bookstore. Yeah. And that to me is really just the greatest gift. Um, is that I am now in conversation with new friends. I am thinking with other writers mm -hmm. um, who found me because independent bookstores exist and because they take a chance on uh, a little independent book like this. Um, so uh, I'm I am just um, I'm just floored by this whole world and greatly indebted to this world of indie bookstores and that it continues. So many thanks to the bookstores, many thanks to the readers um, who are supporting them. And it's books like yours that make it like worth it too. Like if it's like a book that like a person, we can help a person who wouldn't even know it because like, oh, that's a terrible, you know what I mean? Like book that like people yeah. wouldn't normally grab and we could tell yeah. them, yeah, this is why, this is why uh, the Skylight Books podcast does what we do is for, people to find out about books they would never have found they would never have thought of before so thank you for being one of those books that we get to talk about and I will definitely now be like guess what guys <laughs> go outside and climb a mountain and while you're doing that read this book uh, <laughs> my it's my honor Lance thank you oh thank you and thank you to all the listeners out there for coming back or listening for the first time and i hope you have a beautiful day outside appreciating nature have a good one 
Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.